Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Although Nick Whitney, one of the guests today, suggests that this one is going to shake the world. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And in this world-shaking podcast, we're going to be talking about European security after this week's NATO summit in Madrid. And I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to help us make sense of that. Tara Varma, the Senior Policy Fellow and Head of ECFR's Paris Office, is joining us from Paris. Jana Pulierin, the Senior Policy Fellow and Head of ECFR's Berlin Office, is joining from Berlin. And also here is Nick Whitney, who's a Senior Policy Fellow, joining us from the UK, but he's also a former head of the European Defence Agency and has been involved in, in lots of um, moments on European defence. We're going to discuss whether this might be a, a new dawn for European defence. Um, so thanks a lot to all of you for joining. And maybe we should just start with uh, a, a simple question about um, uh, what happened uh, in Madrid. Who wants to do that? What happened in Madrid? I mean, the uh, it was, of course, a highly successful summit. I was remarking earlier that it's hard to think back over the last 40 years to any summit that hasn't been highly successful. But I think this one was. I mean, it was... Um, it was almost a celebration of the fact that um, the NATO alliance has uh, been very severely tested in the last six months and has come through it surprisingly well. NATO solidarity, and I think the same can be said of, of the EU, NATO and EU solidarity has stood up remarkably well. And um, this was the occasion for, for reaffirming that the alliance was, um, was solid um, under revived American leadership for the moment of Joe Biden. Uh, there were probably the most significant event that actually happened there was the agreement to uh, accept the membership applications of, of Sweden and Finland, which is a, a very significant um, moment in shifting the balance of power in the uh, Northern Europe. Quite what was done to buy off the objections of Erdogan, I'm not entirely clear. And I'm sure that some disreputable price was paid by someone. Um, but the main thing is that Finland and Sweden will, will join, um, thus strengthening the alliance northern flank. Beyond that, there was agreement, which had been heavily trailed, that the uh, NATO Rapid Response Force would be increased uh, from the current 40,000 to some 300,000, which means that uh, NATO would be able to put forces up against the Russian border much more rapidly than uh, has been the case in recent decades. We haven't felt the need in recent decades. Now we do. What that will actually comprise in terms of numbers provided by which nations remains unclear. And a disappointment to me is that the major um, immediate troop commitments that have been made are all from the Americans who are building up in um, Central and Eastern European countries, which is exactly where the Europeans should be stepping up. Because if we sit back fat, dumb and happy and don't move to take take the positions of danger, if you like, in the defence of uh, the alliance in Europe, it'll be an altogether nastier shock for us when President Trump just pulls out overnight in his second term. Nick, I want to go, I want to spend most of the podcast talking about that question, and I'd love to hear how you think we can do it. But before we do that, maybe we can have a small diversion around the, the China question, because it maybe wasn't that surprising given events in the last few months that the new strategic concept had Russia as the most significant 
Washington direct threat, it would have been weird if, if it hadn't uh, seen Russia in those terms. But what is new is the fact that it's for the first time talking about China as not just a systemic challenge, but a security challenge. What are the implications of that? I guess it's something that Biden can take home to um, to his own constituencies and point out that he's not just pouring um, billions of dollars of uh, U.S. money into an ungrateful uh, lap of ungrateful Europeans or even grateful Ukrainians, but that he's getting something back out of it, which is a pledge of Western security. And, and be great to hear from Yana and Tara whether it is actually something, because in the past, Germany and France have somewhat resisted the idea of bringing China into NATO, kind of ins- insisting that actually that wasn't its core role. Why did they shift? Is it just a rhetorical shift or does this actually mean something? I think it means something. I think the debate in Germany uh, on China has shifted significantly over the past couple of years. Uh, it's a rather yeah recent development starting in maybe... 2019. Um, but since then, people are more aware here. It started with uh, an awareness um, when it comes to economic coercion or China's attempt to buy uh, European uh, companies at, providing critical infrastructure um, for Germany and Europe and seeking influence in the European Union. But now there is also much more attention on the security aspect um, of the China challenge. Although I have to say, um, it is still not where I think um, we should be. But Where do you think we should be? Yeah, I, look, um, I think 4th of February, when China and Russia made this kind of uh, friendship pact of unlimited friendship, um, I think that should have been the latest wake-up call for us, that both countries um, cooperate quite closely with each other, and I think increasingly so also in the military realm. That is not a love affair, um, but they have a joint interest, and that is to weaken and divide the European Union and the transatlantic alliance. And so there are increasingly um, joint military missions. I think the Chinese have the impression that they can learn a great deal from the Russians because the Russians have been basically in combat and the Chinese haven't. And I think something is brewing. And in NATO, now the, the big question I think that we are debating for a long time is whether the Europeans should become more engaged actually in the Indo-Pacific. And that is something um, that I have thought a lot about because for me, the more logical um, um, kind of solution to that would be that, of course, NATO uh, acknowledges China as a threat, but that the Europeans basically concentrate on their own backyard and provide the backbone for conventional uh, deterrence of Russia. And as as Nick has said, should provide uh, most of the troops and uh, also more strategic enablers and all that, but to allow the Americans to be present, more present in the the Pacific. It'd be great to hear from Tara because France always tells us every single time the Shanghai dialogue meets as a French defense minister explaining that um, that France is actually a Pacific nation. Much more than Germany, I think, <laughs> at least. <laughs> but France has also not really wanted NATO to get too involved in this stuff. So how, how are things seen from Paris? So France has indeed insisted that it was an Indo-Pacific nation. And so by definition, it meant that the EU was also an Indo-Pacific actor and that it needed to be more engaged. Um, I think in a way, the strategic concept also reflects part of the discussion that led to the drafting of the strategic compass of the EU, where Russia and China are described as the two main threats to to the EU, albeit (laughs) in quite different manners. But it did make sense uh, not to put, to, you know, mix them, but to to acknowledge that they they both pose a threat in their own way. 
to the Euro-Atlantic continent, as is, as is put in the as is put in the strategic concept of NATO. No, I'm just wondering because there's been a kind of mini storm in the teacup in the UK because Liz Truss, who's one of the more hawkish um, voices on this, has talked a lot about Taiwan. She was a bit vague about exactly what what Europeans should do, but more should be done to stop. Uh, a war in Taiwan happening as as is happening in Ukraine at the moment, but it definitely implied that that Britain should maybe think about arming Taiwan and the Chinese embassy in in London took umbrage uh, to this and released a bit of war warrior diplomacy. How involved does France think NATO should be in the Taiwan Straits? I think France and others have been clear that for now NATO is an Atlantic organization. So, you know, what's happening in the Pacific should be maybe the realm of either another organization or a different uh, division of labor. But it is certain, and that's the way also it's presented in the strategic concept that, as Yana said, and Nick as well, China has been supporting Russia very clearly here. And China has been saying also that it, it does want to fight this Western order, this liberal order, and there is an opportunity for China right now to support Russia. I think at some point there was a big fear, um, particularly on the American side, that China would uh, provide actual military support to Russia in its war against Ukraine. It seems that, at least from what we know, <coughs> the, the military support was not there. It, it sounds like it sounds like the promise is one of moral support and non-kinetic assistance, rather than necessarily seeing uh, the Taiwan Straits as a sort of central theatre for for NATO in the future. Can we move on because we've got a limited amount of time? And I think the thing which is maybe most interesting for us is to to think about what this means for European security and this idea which you've all evoked of Europeans taking more responsibility for their security in um, in, in Europe. Um, and Nick, your former boss, Javier Solana, just wrote a very interesting article where he kind of argued that, that this is a moment where Europeans need to step up. And he also sees the false dichotomy between European and uh, Europeanists and Atlanticists may be coming to an end now with um, uh, the uh, joining of Finland and Sweden into NATO and the, the end of the opt-out in Denmark. Um, what do you think, if you were still running the European Defence Agency, what would you be kind of arguing um, that Europeans should do now if we want to actually use the next couple of years where Biden's in the White House to, to get ourselves into a less abject position um, for, uh, you know, a potential Trump presidency? The first thing is we should be putting a lot more of our own European boots on the ground in Eastern and Central Europe and not leaving it all to the Americans. But... Um, we probably won't do that as long as the Americans are prepared to carry on um, uh, uh, taking a disproportionate share of uh, of the burden in that regard. The military operational aspects of European defence, of the CSDP, have never been embraced with enthusiasm by um, by Europeans. And I'm talking about um, the leaders of governments, and I'm talking in particular about the chiefs of staff and the professional military, who um, are really allergic to the idea of operating independently of the Americans. So they would be very difficult to wean off in that regard. Where European defence has always had a more promising avenue to explore is on the business of uh, uh, the infrastructure, defence, basically equipment, procurement, armaments, because obviously the military, 
obviously armaments industries um, love big defense budgets spent on on more equipment. So there isn't much resistance at the moment to increasing defense budgets across Europe. People embrace the idea that there should be a better European defense technological and industrial base um, with arguably less money spent um, buying American kit and more on an indigenous uh, European defense industry. The problem is that the only way this can work effectively and uh, efficiently is if the thing is run in the same way as the automotive industry across Europe with the benefits of the single market. You need um, to operate a European defense technological and industrial base on a continental scale, which uh, as works with the automotive industry, where there's plenty of competition, the benefits are spread around, the um, the ability of one country to make brake pads that are better than anybody else's or somebody else to make the gearboxes for, um, all that is harnessed and produces an efficient and effective um, defense, uh, automotive sector. The world of defense is quite different because instead of having a continental market, you have national markets. They're protected by national security exemptions in the treaty. And there are all sorts of vested interests and inertia which are in favor of simply spending national defense funds within national borders. That makes the necessary pooling of efforts and resources and collaborations on new capability projects extremely difficult. I am marginally helpful because, hopeful because um, in recent months since the invasion of Ukraine, the European Commission have stepped into this um, long-standing debate, which has been going on for 20 years, brandishing their money bags. And ba- basically, they're offering massive subsidies to national governments and to national defense companies to come together and commit to working together on new collaborative projects to plug the European capability gaps. And where persuasion, logic, cold reason have failed to um, move this debate along for for the last 20 years very much, um, I I kind of hope that large sums of money offered as bribes from from the central EU budget may actually make a difference here. So, Jana, you wanted to come in maybe with a dose of realism from Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, I I share uh, Nick's enthusiasm and hope, but just um, I was looking at some numbers because I mean the big problem right now is that um, I mean we will have if if all materializes, I think, up to 40% more budget um, in Europe uh, for defense than uh, without the war. So, But there is an enormous um, time pressure, for example, for this uh, special budget, special fund, 100 billion euros in Germany. Um, and so I think this time pressure leads and, and basically the, the pressure to fill the capability gaps uh, immediately leads many... So just to be clear, 40% more across Europe or in Germany? Across Europe. No, 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 across Europe. So the, 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 the problem is that, for example, kind of the easy solutions, the buying off the shelf American product solutions are now very attractive. So instead of investing in joint procurement, um, we see an influx or we will see an influx of imported weapon systems that could lead to increased fragmentation because we buy from mostly the United States, but also from Israel or South Korea because it's just available. Um, so and. The problem I see is, I mean, that 
we see a reverse um, effect, um, a reverse 2007 effect when we had the financial crisis. When we had the financial crisis, every European country was just cutting um, expenses uh, uncoordinated. And now I'm just afraid that we start spending uncoordinated and that everybody just um, spends whatever um, the kind of the, the national um, reasoning um, suggests and that it's not coordinated. And so just to give you some numbers, um, the collaborative defense investment dropped um, from um, 21% in 2016 to 11% in 2020. And the collaborative investment in research and technology dropped from 13% in 2015 to 6% in 2020. So the trend um, is not going in the right direction. And Nick is right that um, the commission has uh, woken up and has promised all sorts of instruments. Um, but I'm just um, not yet convinced that the Europeans have or see that they really, really need to um, invest more collaboratively also because of our publics. I mean, our um, report, um, our recent unlock report has shown that there is a lot of support for more defense spending, but people want to see more bang uh, for the buck. So they want to see um, us spending better. And um, I'm just sometimes skeptical how capable we are of doing this. So one of the mechanisms to use that is, is this the European Defence Union, which the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has, has launched. What does that mean? What is the European Defence Union? Does someone want to explain that to our listeners who might not have been following it as closely? I'll be happy to say that it means whatever you want it to mean. That's the that's the that's the joy of the phrase. It replaces the European Army, which was a catastrophic. You mean it's an empty phrase which is never going to happen? But something much less damaging, because the European Army was an extremely damaging phrase. I think it still lurks on in the bowels of um, German coalition agreements. But um, Jean Claude Juncker produced it in 2016 in his uh, State of the European Union address. When he was a, when he was legacy building, and it was a, why he said it, I don't know. Um, and of course, it plays absolutely into the hands of um, uh, nationalists and anti-federalists who um, pretend that pretend that it means something. I mean, I could talk for several minutes about why it is totally meaningless. A European army There's no more real than a NATO army. You don't actually have a NATO army. Um, but the defence union is, is, is sounds good. It means um, greater integration of national efforts. It means um, increasingly moving towards common policies and common aims and common programmes insofar as possible, pooling of efforts and resources. Um, so, yeah, great. I'm also a European Defence Union. Can we talk a bit more about the, this whole question about the money? Because it's like a vast amount of money, hundreds of billions of euros. There was an amazing speech um, which uh, Christine Lagarde, the head of the, the European Central Bank, gave uh, a few months ago um, called, uh, about European resilience in a, in a changing world. And she actually was arguing that um, this kind of new defense investment could be one of the, the, the really big boosters for European economies as we go into recession and deal with stagflation. And she had some figure that it, it could add 0.2 percentage points to euro area growth by 2024. Presumably that's not going to happen if we spend it all on, on F-35s. No, but you need to bridge the gap between buying short term. We do need, I mean, we do need more capabilities immediately. If you look at the strategic concept published in Lisbon 12 years ago, and then the one published this week, 
12 years ago, the Euro-Atlantic continent was at peace. Today, the Euro-Atlantic continent is at war. So it does make sense to spend immediately now. The question is, of course, to make sure that all of this money is not spent immediately buying off shelves from other nations, but to take at least half of it to construct this European defense industrial base that Nick and Jana have mentioned already. If you look at the conclusions of the Versailles March Summit, where basically the heads of state uh, of the 27 asked, tasked the commission with looking at this uh, capability gaps, and, and it was for the commission to provide this report and to explain basically what the capability gaps were and how they were planning on, on mitigating them, this was already a big political change. The, the heads of state decided that it was for the, the commission to come up with this list. And I think it has started to do so. There is now a DG which is looking at it much more closely. I agree that there are national audiences and national industrial, by the way, defense, industri defense industrials who will resist the idea of uh, working together, who will resist the idea of joint procurements. But there are also some who agree. And it is for the commission, for the heads of state to make a political decision into bringing them together and to looking at what we need. Because we also know that the FCAS and the Franco-German tank system are basically at a standstill. These are not great examples of how we hope for joint procurement to go until now. So I would say ideally we start working on new projects. We involve not just the Franco-German engine, though I would say it's necessary, but also Southern European states and of course Poland and the Baltic states. We need to get them on board as well. Otherwise, it will not work because in a way, they are holding the European diplomatic and military leadership right now. And there needs to be a, some form of acknowledgement for that. As you said, Mark, there is a lot of money for this right now. We've been able to provide Ukraine, which is well now a candidate uh, country, but which was not an EU member state nor a NATO member state with 2 billion euros through the European Peace Facility Fund. Uh, so hopefully for... EU member states, we should be able to find at least as much, if not uh, if not tenfold, much more. What I think is um, important is that we streamline the procurement um, processes in the EU and NATO better, and that we um, basically are able to produce and develop military capabilities in the EU framework that can then be useful in the NATO um, framework. And in the past... I wanted to end with this glorious subject of, of EU-NATO relations, <laughs> which has uh, animated so many fascinating conferences over the last few decades. But before we do that, I think Nick want, had a two-finger on... So I, I just wanted to make two quick points on... Um, first of all... Uh, Christine Lagarde. Um, yes, if you throw billions of um, government money at practically anything, you're liable to stimulate um, economic activity. Personally, I would rather see billions of dollars being, or billions of euros being thrown at um, sustainable energy in Europe. But that's, uh, you know, the idea that spending on defence is somehow uniquely good at um, generating economic activity, I think, is something promoted by defense industries. man who wielded one of the biggest checkbooks in Europe for, for buying defense ministries once upon a time. So maybe this is maybe we should sit up and listen. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> the other thing is that Tara is absolutely right um, about the, you know, the two flagship collaborations for the next generation of capabilities in Europe are the new tank and the new combat aircraft, which are basically um, Franco-German or uh, 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 collaborations. Um, and if if those if those things can't be um, can't be got going, then I see very little hope for collaboration in Europe. I mean, it, it is a 
It is desperate how the heads of state of government have to constantly bang industries' heads together to, to make this thing progress. Let me just tell you a little story, which is a sort of which I expect will be edited out. But um, years ago, twenty years ago, when I was uh, when I was working at the European Defence Agency, exactly the same sort of thing was going on about um, could Germany and France cooperate on on combat aircraft, and a very senior figure in Dassault told me one evening at the end of a rather drunken dinner that um, his views of uh, Franco-German cooperation had been formed and he was a very young man working for Dassault. And we were back in the 60s or something. And, uh, you know, they were talking about collaboration. And a Dassault delegation were invited to Munich um, uh, to uh, talk to what was then Dassault, I suppose, the German aerospace uh, giants. And they set up a, a catered dinner for a small group to discuss this in a in a hangar in uh, in Munich, which was a sort of fine symbolic setting. And the French delegation found themselves seated under the wing of a Messerschmitt one hundred and nine, um, and that entered so deeply into the soul of this guy that you know. I mean, there's ferocious animosity and ferocious nationalism. And uh, if you think the Brits are any better, well, um, I just remind you that we Brexited. So um, anyway, um, sorry, back to where we were, back to the proper conversation. Uh, well, is it a proper conversation, Yana? Um, this whole question of, of EU-NATO cooperation, which um, uh, is... Uh, endlessly discussed, and the, the the advances seem to be almost inversely proportional to the amount of time that people spend talking about it. But is that now going to change with all these different opt-outs being ended and countries that used to be outside of the NATO fold coming in and almost total overlap in the membership of the two organizations? Let me be the optimist here for once. So I think that NATO and the EU will become more aligned through Finland and Sweden joining NATO and Denmark um, joining EU defense. I think these are all great developments. And also let me praise the uh, strategic um, compass here for a moment, because I think... Um, it was very clear uh, in defining uh, Europe's ambition. So I think it... I don't know if cemented, but it it it, it helped uh, to clarify the roles that the EU and NATO um, play. That what the division of labor is, so that 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 basically the EU, when it comes to uh, missions and operations, concentrates on crisis management, but that NATO is um, responsible for territorial um, defense, collective defense um, in Europe. And um, I, I think. That became pretty clear, and the compass compass um, takes a clear position here, um, and attributes um, European collective defense clearly to NATO. I think that was he healthy and helpful. But at the same time, I think the compass does something which I think is also very good because it gives the EU a role as an enabler for EU defense uh, through uh, several uh, ways. First, through um, basically enabling the EU to um, invest uh, more and better in defense capabilities in a coordinated manner. And Nick has talked about this already. So um, there are several incentives that the Compass suggested. 
um, and I think we, we now need to use them. So how to achieve more at uh, less costs. And then also this idea that we produce something, as I said, in the EU that uh, could then also bolster NATO's uh, deterrence and defense um, capacity. And that the two organizations basically are not two black boxes that work separately, but that, that what we produce in the EU is helpful um, for NATO. But for that, in order to actually work better, I think we need to, again, streamline our planning processes even more. I mean, that progress has been made. But for example, there are just the small things. For example, NATO just announced that they will launch an uh, innovation fund a separate innovation fund, but the EU already has an innovation fund or it's just the EDA has just um, declared that they will have a defense innovation hub uh, in the EDA. And so this lets me wonder uh, all the time because I think, why is that not one fund? Why can that not be more closely coordinated? And I know that there is this glass ceiling and it's the Turkish question, like uh, Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, but I mean, there is still so much unused potential. So is is it just Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, or is France another member of that axis, um, Tara? I don't know that. I mean, France is another member of that axis. I was looking, I was waiting actually to see what Emmanuel Macron's reaction would be to the announcement that Sweden and Finland could get inside. And I have to say, it took a bit of time compared to particularly the Baltic leaders for Macron to say something. But ultimately, he did say that he commended the fact that they were going to come inside, that it would strengthen European security, uh, and that it would make sense for both organizations also to cooperate. And I have to say, Jana was talking about the concept, the compass. I'll go to the strategic concept one, once more. This is the first time that NATO is acknowledging the EU as a unique and essential partner. It's unprecedented. It's happened. And I think it does make sense. You've said yourself, there's almost a perfect overlap between the membership of the two organizations, but they do. We just need to get the Turks and the Americans and the Canadians into the EU and we'll be there. (laughs) But I think this is precisely where there is a good argument for this famous European Security Council. Andrew Duff had this piece in Politico a few weeks ago where he was saying, actually, we need to to think more seriously about the European Security Council. It would be a format where we could get uh, Turkey or the UK at some point, maybe even Russia in, in the mid to long future. But it would also be the perfect format for EU-NATO cooperation so that indeed NATO doesn't become the preferred format for basically EU-US security cooperation, which is the big fear of both Canada and Turkey. I suspect it's not going to be there. It'll be in the G7 or in bilateral links. But we can have another discussion about the European Security Council in the future. I think what is clear about this is is that Ukraine has shown both how important military issues are, but also how important the non-military dimensions are, which means that the EU is increasingly central to to any notion of security and of European security. And is in fact, even part of what Ukraine's calling for when they talk about security guarantees, the prospect of EU membership, which is maybe another sign of that. But there's lots of us, uh, lots of podcasts for us to fill in the future talking about those things. However, we have one important thing left to do on today's podcast, which is our book bookshelf segment. Nick, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I'm currently going back to reread a 19th century, um, I can't I can't cope with the modern world anymore, a 19th century Victorian novelist, Anthony Trollope, um, who is with his extraordinarily contemporary um, book, The Way We Live Now, which is about a 
swindler and financier who um, occupies, comes from nowhere um, with with no substantial resources and occupies the, the, the towering heights of the city of London as a financial centre and seduces everyone and is chased after by politicians and uh, wealthy people. Um, and I think as far as I remember, the whole thing ends in disaster. But it is um, it is a... It appeals to my pessimistic self in in um, in describing the um, the unreality and danger of um, of the inequalities in our society. Actually, of the uh, of the um, of the behaviour of the City of London, and in uh, not exclusively uh, it's not exclusively an English phenomenon, of course. And I do wonder when it comes back to uh, European defence and so on. It all sounds great at the moment. In 12 months' time, when um, government debt is uh, the, the cost to be paid for government debt uh, goes through the roof and there are bread riots and streets of capital cities in Europe, um, how robust um, a more determined defence response to Russia will look. What about you, Tara? I've just finished reading uh, this French novel, so this is, sorry for our French-speaking audience, called Au Café de la Ville Perdue, which is set in Cyprus and talks about Greece and Turkey and talks about this seaside resort town called Varosha, who, which has basically become a total phantom city since uh, the invasion by Turkey in 1974. And so it talks about NATO, the EU, the relationship to war and how younger generations inherit some very old conflicts. Fantastic. And what about you, Jana? So I actually want to um, highlight something that Nick has recommended uh, in our previous um, email conversation because he's, he uh, drew my attention to Kelly Grieco um, on Defense News. Um, it's a commentary um, and the title is The NATO Summit is Chance to Wean Europe of U.S. Military Might. Um, and I read it and it's basically everything that uh, lays in the future. It's an American who argues the Europeans need to do more because it's just unsustainable and the, the Americans cannot and will not do it forever. It's a recommendation uh, to the United States to withdraw from Europe. And I think that is very healthy uh, for us to read. And of course, I also uh, would recommend uh, NATO's new strategic concept and the EU's strategic compass and to read them kind of together um, and, and to compare them. My recommendation is a, a book which I'm just starting called Machtwechsel by Anna Zabhai about how a new political generation is, is going to change the country. And we're going to get her on the podcast in a few weeks. So um, you should read it now as homework for future podcasts. Um, we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, do head straight to the platform that you use to download this podcast on and subscribe for future episodes. And while you're there, please give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will mean that even more people get to experience the joys of the world in 30 minutes. But for now, from Nick Whitney, Tara Varma, Jana Pulierin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal. And our editor of this episode is Adam Teufel. 